Support for Live in 225 is provided in part by the Griff Family Center for Organic Production and Research at Cal Poly. For more information or to support the center, please visit organic.calpoly.edu. That's organic.calpoly.edu for the Grimm Family Center for Organic Production and Research at Cal Poly. Support for Live in 225 is provided in part by AgCom Central. Visit AgCom Central on twitch.tv forward slash AgCom Central or on our website, agcomcentral.com, where you can follow our social media. That's twitch.tv forward slash A-G-C-O-M-M Central for AgCom Central. Support for Live in 225 is provided in part by the Department of Agricultural Education and Communication at Cal Poly. Visit aged.calpoly.edu to register for our programs or to show your support. That's aged.calpoly.edu for the Department of Agricultural Education and Communication at Cal Poly. Alrighty, good morning everybody. This is Live in 225. Um, I am your host, Natalie Victorine, and today is episode three of our podcast series about organic agriculture. Um, and today we have a little bit of a different episode. We're going to be talking about challenges to the organic ag industry and um, what that pertains to and kind of like, kind of, um, figuring out some like solutions or like ways to navigate these challenges in the organic industry. Um, here with me um, on the panel, we have um, Dr. Mike. Um, say hello. Oh, oh yeah, uh, <laughs> it's Dr. Mike again, AgComs <laughs> professor, just, you know, doing all the things and, and it's, it's going fantastic so far, I say. Alrighty, and we have um, Dr. Amanda Fry with us here today. Could you give us a little bit of an introduction, um, a little bit of your background? and one thing that you're excited about today. Oh, wow, sure, good morning. Um, well, um, my name is Dr. Amanda Fry. I'm a sociologist and my training is in education um, with a focus on race, inequality, language. I look at sort of the intersections of inequality around race, class, gender, sexuality, language, and how that impacts educational equity. Um, but before I came back to academia, I uh, worked in the nonprofit sector for a whole number of years. Uh, 11 years of which I spent as executive director of a multi-service community agency on the East Coast where we had a range of human services and, and uh, supportive services for pre predominantly low-income and minority communities. Um, a preschool uh, program on site, before and after school programs for kids, uh, teen center open evenings and weekends, and we also had the only daily meal site in the county. We offered a hot breakfast every day for anybody in the community who needed a meal, working people and unhoused people, um, primarily. Um, and we also had the largest food pantry in the county. So I'm really kind of coming today, speaking from that bank of experience, working with folks uh, who experience challenges around um, not only hunger, but driven by sort of other major areas of life, employment, challenges, education, healthcare, housing. Yeah. yeah it all kind of comes together. That is really impressive. Thank you again for um, having the chance and to not, not sit with us and, and join us on this discussion today. I was not, delighted. Not gonna lie, I'm, I'm trying to get Dr. Fry on her own podcast, <laughs> so we may hire this entire crew to like transfer over to Dr. Fry's podcast if she wants it. That would definitely be very, that would definitely be very um, interesting and very, very needed. Well, thank you. Um, and then we have Dr. Grishup, who has been 
um, on our podcast in the past. Do you mind giving a little bit of an introduction? Yeah, kind of like what you're excited about today. Thanks. So um, I'm Dr. Matt Grishop. I'm the director of the Grimm Family Center for Organic Production and Research here at Cal Poly, our new organic center. Um, I'm, as always, really excited to be here because I love to talk about all things related to agriculture and specifically organic ag. Um, I'm an entomologist by training, um, so I've, you know, my emphasis is typically on the production side of agriculture, although I've done a little bit of post-harvest work, and as an educator, um, I've thought a lot about the other side of the food system or the consumers. Yeah. Well, this is a lovely panel. I can't wait to um, kick off this discussion. Me too. Um, we're just going to get right into it and um, talk about the main mission statement of the organic production industry. Um, so, Dr. Grishop, would you mind um, just giving our listeners a rundown of um, the main, the three main components of organic agriculture? Well, um, that's complicated because um, organic agriculture um, has multiple definitions depending on where you are geographically and from a political, political and economic unit standpoint. So in the United States, um, organic agriculture has really developed to the point of a legal label um, that's managed by the USDA Agricultural Marketing Service. And so the emphasis of the Agricultural Marketing Service has really been the application of a label that provides um, consumers in our food system or eaters is maybe a, another way to say it with assurances that produce that they're buying through our larger food system was produced via organic principles and the principles really that the AMS is focused on have been around synthetic inputs more than anything else so it's really focused on whether or not synthetic pesticides fertilizer etc are used in organic production but if you take a broader view of the organic movement um, from a very Western bias standpoint, um, the International um, Federation of Organic Ag Movements would add a very large social justice component to mm -hmm. organic production. And from a production standpoint, the traditional emphasis has really been on the development of healthy soils to support healthy plants, to support hopefully healthy animals and humans and communities. Um, but just like our food system, I mean, this is a massive, uh, it, it's a massive edifice and it has many faces. Um, so depending on what, you know, what uh, your perspective and placement is, it's gonna, it's gonna look really differently. Yeah. Um, you talked a little bit about iFoam, um, and I, I like that they, ha they add that social justice aspect mm -hmm. into their, um, their mission statement and what they believe in. Um, could you describe like a little bit about what that means for organic producers? Like what are, what are some... Um... Well, you know, I think in the United States, again, if you're gonna put the word organic in association with your crop, it has this definite economic meaning. Um, and I think as our larger sort of food system has, um, I mean, the, the, probably the best word is co-opted, but, but I don't, that word often has a negative connotation, but I don't necessarily think it is always negative because it's a sign of progress, even if it's incremental. Um, so as the larger food system is co-opted and adapted to organics, it's really focused you know, on these synthetic inputs. But I think for the organic core, um, there's always been an emphasis on how do we produce things more sustainably for local communities? So how do we, how do we sustain local agricultural communities rather than moving towards or 
you know, the, the reality of our larger food system, which is very much not focused on sustaining local communities. It's really mm -hmm. focused on extracting and packaging foods to push into this large, right. very much corporatized exactly. system. I wanted, I want to direct the conversation over to Dr. Fry. From your experience, um, could you see any of these inequalities um, in, in the agriculture industry and in the food industry, but more notably in the organic industry? Um, because there's definitely inequalities when it comes to distribution of food and distribution of healthy food. Um, so I just wanted to direct that towards you a little bit. Oh, sure. I mean, I'm not an expert on the agricultural side of things, but thinking about this from a social, economic, uh, community standpoint, um, you know, um, I think about uh, ultimately in the United States and, and pretty much anywhere, right, greater wealth pretty much equals greater health. Mm -hmm. Right. And so when we think about who has access um, to organic produce, to organic products, sort of what that um, mechanism of consumption really looks like in American society, it's it's uh, broadly directed towards those with the disposable income, the time uh, uh, to be able to travel, the opportunity uh, to live in communities with greater access to these kinds of products um, and the ability to purchase them. And mm -hmm. so um, you know, uh, from a sort of a, a, a wide lens standpoint, you know, wealthier people have lower levels of mortality, like better health outcomes across the life uh, course, um, lower risks of things like uh, hypertension, asthma. The U.S. has some of the most, like the largest uh, income-based disparities in the world. Um, and so when you think about the sort of massive scale production, our total food system, which is obviously a, like a really complex uh, organism, um, you start to think about, um, in some ways, the reproduction or replication of pre-existing disparities that we already have embedded in American society. And that, mm -hmm. of course, affects who gets access to, who, who's able to get involved uh, in the industry and who gets access to um, these products on the consumer end. Yeah. yeah. I um, think that question of access actually translates really well to a production system standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, and especially here in California, where we have very high land prices, um, for anyone to get engaged in farming as a profession, access to land is the, it's sort of the defining if you can't access land, you're going to have a really hard it's time. It's the make doing it or break it. it. It's the make it or break it. And so, if you do have someone who's coming from um, a position where you know they have general generational wealth, especially associated with land ownership, it's a lot, it's a lot easier. easier to get into it. If you don't, and and you don't have a lot of you know capital to kind of transform into access to land, it's it's really incredibly tough. Okay. And um, and that's some place where I think. Um, California Certified Organic Farms, which is the, the largest certifier in the state, has been really quite active in developing granting programs, especially targeting first-time farmers. Um, really, they've had a big focus on um, farmers coming from Latin America and Latin American background to try to provide them with an easier ac access point to organic mar markets. And the way they're doing that is they provide $10,000 cash grants, um, which the farmers can then use to offset you know, capital costs associated with land rent, because it's really just even in California, hard to even own land. Um, you're pretty much, regardless of your scale, you're probably renting land. Um, and then also offset costs associated with the actual certification process. So paying for certification inspections, um, offsetting the cost associated with paperwork and everything else. But 
and and there's been some national investment just in the in the last couple of months with the transition to organic production program. Um, but this is a this is a massive issue that really it's across our food system. Um, if you're not already in the agricultural business, it's really hard to get into it mm-hmm. on the production side. And uh, I'd like to add to that, to, you know, two two statements from the production side. I remember Matt saying, you know, people want to get at at the household level. People want to get into organic agriculture, and even with restricted spaces, they would probably grow some stuff, but it doesn't have the nutrient-dense foods that you would want to produce to consume to get you the nutrients and the fulfillment of a full meal. And then from the consumer's perspective, and anecdotally, like uh, when I just got out of grad school, okay, still... uh, not making full salary or whatever. <laughs> I mean, the the man on the street have to make the decision. Do I want to pay the two three dollars extra for an organic whatever it is compared yeah. to conventionally produced uh, factory farmed uh, items? Which in the short term, those dollars and cents add up. But in the long term, you know, uh, what what are the benefits to? Uh, is is it is it a direct benefit or is it an environmental benefit that I'm paying into or buying into? To, to give me the satisfaction that I'm doing the right thing as a consumer. And so right. I think those two two conversations are need to be a little more exposed. And I, that's a great point. I mean, how, because really you have the potential short-term benefits. And certainly, I mean, regardless of whether it's produced organically or conventionally, we have the data to say that, you know, a diet that's rich in fruits and vegetables and, and diverse, I mean, the, your baseline calories are still probably coming from grains and pulses. So, you know, wheat, corn, soybeans, whether you're eating it directly or eating an animal that ate that. But your, you know, that diversity in your diet is so incredibly important to the maintenance of health over the short and, and especially long term um, gut health. Um, you know, risk of cancer, heart disease, everything is so tied into that. So that that's a huge issue. But then you also have the the true cost of our food system. And so, you know, what is the cost of the dead zone off the Gulf of Mexico, which is, you know, twice the size of New Jersey. It's an area where because of nutrient effluent through the Mississippi Delta, which is related to largely Midwestern agriculture, there are no fisheries there anymore because the water is so low in oxygen due to eutrophication, due to phosphate and nitrogen nitrate overload that, you know, that's a cost. And as a society, we all bear that cost. Wait, wait, wait. A, a space like this actually exists the size of New Jersey? Mm. Twice the size Twice of New Jersey right New Jersey? now in, in the Gulf of Mexico. And this is not, oh, I mean, goodness. this is a, it, it's not just restrained to the Gulf of Mexico. If you go to areas where you have um, rivers running into the ocean off a lot of agricultural land and then oftentimes, you know, poorly managed, um, you know, human waste, so sewage, there are dead zones all over the world. And I mean, there's dead zones in the Great Lakes that are in uh, the Green Bay um, related to hog production in Wisconsin. You have these dead zones. I'm getting off social issues. Of, no, I think it's yeah. it, I think it's really important to think about just from a, you know, um, the sort of wider perspective, like um, what you're talking about are sort of decades of disinvestment in communities that have sort of been targeted for receiving that waste. Right. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like oh sort of goodness. when we have this hierarchical economic setup where you have some populations that are privileged and protected and some populations seen as exploitable or as seen as less important across, you know, kind of any number of, of measures. 
those are the communities that receive the waste. That's where we start to talk about environmental racism. That's right. when we start to talk about um, the disparities between the developed world uh, and I'm, you know, air quoting all over the place, um, <laughs> um, and and other countries who have been the receivers of the wastes of other countries, right? Like we we are are you know in a moment, hopefully, um, where people are actually thinking about this sort of uh, these sort of global interdependence issues. So like plastic. Right? Recycling, I'm yeah. sure. not just air quoting, <laughs> sure, but the sure. fact that most of that, yeah, it's getting shipped sure. to other less economically developed countries and economies, and then it just ends up as a waste there. Right. But to be specific, I mean, and you were talking about the difficulty of getting into farming, getting into organic farming in the first place for folks who don't have family wealth, who don't have access to inherited land. Um, you know, that's sort of where you're seeing this push for urban farming. We were talking a little bit before we got started about um, programs like the Soul Fire Farm in upstate New York or uh, closer to home, um, the Israel Family Farms in Sacramento, um, where you have black farmers, black organic farmers reaching back to ancestral farming practices thinking about soil health and thinking about not only uh, turning unused, disused, dis, like discarded urban land into rich, healthy uh, medium for growing healthy food for the community, but also turning their operations into education and support programs to try to create more urban farms and urban farmers in other disinvested communities across the country. So you have people like, I mean, Soul Fire Farms, Leah Penniman, um, you know, uh, the, her first book, uh, her second book is, is coming out, uh, uh, but Farming While Black is her first book. I mean, it's a complete how-to guide for black urban farmers to think about uh, building an, or, an urban organic farm from the, the soil health uh, to production, teaching, uh, you know, business, uh, business skills as well as farming skills. Um, um, they're really trying to create a movement and they offer classes and workshops virtually and in person. They offer summer camps in upstate New York for new urban Whoa. farmers who want to actually kind of think about reimagining the potential of these urban spaces that have been left behind in exactly this way. And Israel Family Farms does the same thing in Sacramento. They do education projects. They even um, have a program whereby they subsidize and help urban uh, uh, urban residents um, build gardens, right? Build healthy organic gardens, right? They'll come in and they'll mm. do your raised bed for you, but they'll also teach you about soil management. And they'll <laughs> also teach you about um, how to how to create and sustain your own your own um, your own source for healthy healthy foods. It, it's building a kind of an interconnected, interdependent network of folks who are literally from the ground up trying to change the food system and trying to change these problems of access. Um, so that you know, health isn't only a privilege of the wealthy, right? Really trying to get at some of these basic processes um, to, to try to transform communities and transform people's lives. And, yeah. and can I just draw back to the, the you know, conventionally, culturally based uh, agriculture? These people who, uh, the people who have practiced culturally based agriculture uh, know what they're doing. They understand balance. Uh, I, I read a, an article about, you know, how the Aztec culture always had clean water, and when the Europeans came in, they just like demol demolished their clean water system. And I'm like, yeah. you know, the, I guess what I'm trying to draw is like, you know, the African culture has have their own agricultural system, Hispanic culture, uh, you know, European culture as well, and all these come into play. But since we're contesting between uh, factory farming is what I would call it or conventional farming and you know organically based farming it's it's contentious because uh, one definitely 
has its split. Both definitely have their places, but one seeks to, you know, be regenerative in nature. Uh, mm -hmm. So, yeah. Right. Well, I mean, you also speak to another issue there, which is not just on the production side. I think about the access side, too. Absolutely. Right. So like for for many urban dwellers, for low income, majority minority communities that have been left behind, um, you know, by sort of, you know, federal, state and local policies around mm. urban development. I mean, I can, that's a whole other conversation. Um, but for folks in what typically we refer to as food deserts. Right. And that's a um, disputable kind of the, a term that has a lot of applications in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, we have these concentrations, these communities that have left that are left behind, where there's no good place to access uh, organic produce. If you can, if you can or find even it, even if you can even find right. fresh produce, produce right, at all, right? From exactly. Lansing. If you can find it, there, I mean, <laughs> there are neighborhoods where, yeah, your local food system is the dollar store, right? Oh and God. and the and the organic produce, as such as it exists, is still sort of an industry model, right? It's still sort of a large scale operation. Typically, you'd find in a larger supermarket and larger supermarket don't want to be in those neighborhoods because mm. their profit margin would be too low. So so if you can get access to the organic produce, um, it's also then, what, 25 to 40% uh, you know, more expensive, sometimes higher than that, than, than uh, the, the typical factory farm produce. Um, even thinking about farmers markets, which you know, of course, our lovely downtown Ooh. slow farmers market is a great example. In that, they are working with the market match program, right? So, like folks who are receiving public benefit, like their CalFresh benefits um, on the EBT card. CalFresh is what we call the SNAP program in California, so supplemental nutrition program, right? That's available nationwide. Um, some farmers markets are signed up with market match so that you can actually use your EBT card, get tokens at the market, and then use oh. those tokens to shop. Um, not everybody knows about the program, <laughs> yep. and not every farmer's market, I mean, it's only like about 130, 150 farmer's markets in the state that are actually even participating in Market Match. Mm -hmm. so, so you have the problem of, is there organic produce near you? <laughs> can you get to it? Um, and if you can get to it, can you afford it, right? We don't have necessarily the mechanisms in place to um, create that avenue of access for everyone in the U.S. And that's, and that's another problem that the family farmers, the urban farmers, are trying to also address, right? By, by producing locally, by really thinking about the education um, side of things by, um, by feeding people, but also teaching people how to feed themselves and creating these networks of mutual support and interdependence so that um, growers and members of the community that they serve are part of changing the, the reality of nutrition, the reality of health in their local communities. That's really what's motivating that movement. I, I have a pointed or directed question to you. Um, what is your perspective on organic agriculture generally? like? I, I guess we should have opened with that. Dr. Mike, I wanted to just interject a little <laughs> oh, bit. Oh, sorry, sorry, ma'am. <laughs> no, it's We're okay. This, this discussion has been like really informative and eye-opening, um, just about the intersectionality of not, not just the organic agriculture movement, but um, food distribution in general in this country um, and how that intersects with income inequality, race, and all of these um, other factors. So it's just been really eye-opening, and just thank you again for sitting on this panel. But I wanted to redirect. Um, we're going to have a short break. <laughs> we're going to watch a video that some of the production team has created for this episode. Um, so we're going to just divert to that really quickly. Uh, one question. Describe your thoughts on organic agriculture. Um, so I believe organic agriculture is a different way um, of agriculture that's being popularized right now. Um, it is healthy but not necessarily sustainable as it has a lot of methods and 
different mechanisms that go into it for actual organic produce to be um, cultivated at the end. And also organic is not necessarily uh, fully organic as some amount of pesticides are also added into that. Organic agriculture? I only know about like GMO stuff organic-wise. I know my boss Shin always complains about like the labeling for organic products and how it's false advertisement, but um, it's pricey. Um, I have no idea what that is, but I hope agriculture is organic, so. I'm gonna be honest, I really don't know anything about it. I probably should educate myself. I remember taking a biology class where a professor told me that organic doesn't necessarily mean organic. Like it doesn't match up with the biology term, but I don't know anything about that. I mean, I don't think I've heard about it that much. Um, the concept sounds cool. Um, I don't know, I don't really know that much about organic agriculture. Okay. I think it is a safe method like to grow crops. It'd be great if everybody was able to like afford them. Like or That was a really good video. Yeah, um, one of the biggest questions that came, the, one of the biggest like concerns that came to my mind after watching that video, um, is the the gap of consumer education about organic agriculture and what that means. Um, so I just kind of wanted to direct the conversation towards that, um, Dr. Mike. As an ag comms professor, oh and that's your expertise, um, what what would you have to add to the discussion on? Um, this, this problem in organic agriculture and how we can better educate consumers um, on what organic actually means. Because a lot of these students in this video um, didn't understand what um, the definition of organic is and how that can benefit them. Yeah, uh, a really good question. And, and so that's been not a struggle, but like a really exciting journey for me, uh, communicating all aspects of agriculture, right? So um, it's just that in this, this iteration of, of my application of it, it's based on organic uh, agriculture. And I would say it's just about pushing the message out in the various forms, targeting uh, different audiences. And generally speaking, as long as the man on the street has access to whatever food, that's their primary concern. And mm -hmm. then whatever they can do beyond that to, you know, supplement their, their knowledge on it, um, they would. But I think as college students, you know, their primary concern is like getting to the next, yeah. getting to the next assignment. And so <clears throat> I don't blame these, these college students or this, the people in the video, I don't blame them for not understanding or not having access to the knowledge of where their food comes from, what different terms and definitions mean. However, it's also our responsibility, everyone in the room and, and you know, what the people are seeing right now or hearing right now are the experts on the panel, but there's a, a room full of agricultural communicators in here and it's our responsibility, as I told them at the start of this course, to develop the messaging and the verbiage and, and, and the target audiences to get the messages out so that at least we're doing uh, our part, we're you know taking care of our responsibilities to get the information out there. Now, we haven't gone into agenda setting by the media, framing by the media, gatekeeping by the media, and anything like that, because even though we put messages out there, you know... Um, it doesn't necessarily the get... Yeah, the, the platforms platform. that we put them on are regulated by, you know, uh, an algorithm or an AI person or a, a manager of that information, so... 
we could talk till we're blue in the face. Um, we still have to contend with media-related theories uh, when we put the information out there. But our responsibility is to understand how we can get the messaging to the audience in a way that they would accept it and understand it. And beyond that, it's, uh, you know, we did our part. Exactly. And I, I, I like that Dr. Frey mentioned um, the, edu the various educational programs that um, certain farmers use. I think you mentioned Israel Farms in Sacramento. Yeah, it's um, Israel with a Y. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. Mm -hmm. um, my, I'm sorry. No, it's great. Um, but I think that that's something that um, is really important and definitely should be adopted by um, more producers, conventional or, or organic, because... A lot of the a lot of the disparity comes from the production side and not properly educating consumers on um, the all of the work that goes into creating a product from field to fork. You know, I think that's really important. But it also just viewing the video, like two things stand out to me. One is the level of skepticism. Mm -hmm. uh, there's this label, but I'm sure I think I heard that it doesn't mean what you think it means, right? Like, mm -hmm. well, you know, maybe everything that's labeled as organic really isn't. So that's that level of suspicion is interesting to me, um, as well as that sense of well, it's really expensive, it's very pricey, right? So like if those are the two major takeaways that we have, or just in what we were able to view, if those are messages that are coming through just from these like sort of light touches. Of, of inquiry, um, I'm really curious about where people get those ideas. Like, where, mm -hmm. how, how is that message spreading um, in opposition and contradiction to the messages that that agricultural communicators might be wanting to put out there? Exactly. Um, and another thing that occurs to me, and maybe uh, Dr. Mike, we need to do a research study, um, is. Uh, is, well, so like just now, I'm a parent, right? So and, uh, my kids have gone to school and on East Coast uh, as well as in California. Um, and I remember, and maybe this is common to your experience as well, um, uh, the school nutrition programs having wide variety, right, in terms of the quality of meals that are offered for students. But when we were in wealthier, and I have to say wealthier and whiter communities, the quality of school lunches that are available to my kids at school, as well as the marketing and messaging mm. around uh, those meals being locally sourced, those meals coming from organic producers was prevalent, right? Oh. It was part of the of the um, the school department's desire to communicate this commitment to health and nutrition to families, to the wider community. But it's like on the delivery trucks that bring supplies to your school cafeteria. It's in the on the menu that gets handed out. It's in the messaging. It's in the, the weekly newsletter that comes home, uh, that gets emailed to parents. Um, so some schools that have this as a target area um, of like education and communication are doing amazing things, right? And of course, there's, you know, being located in, in Central Coast, we have this great bounty around us. Um, it's very easy for San Luis Coastal Unified School District uh, to make those organic meals happen in the schools. Um, mm -hmm. But I would wonder if you were surveying college students on this campus, um, whether there weren't some impact um, on the knowledge around organic produce and organic agriculture coming from these different kinds of educational environments, previous experiences that our students on campus may have had. So are people coming to Cal Poly with greater knowledge um, and great, greater knowledge because of greater exposure um, in their K-12 years, for example? Mm -hmm. And students who may not have had those exposures, are they showing different yeah. um, uh, levels of understanding? I mean, I feel like that's a that's a measurable I mean, product, project. I think, I think that the level of education um, definitely starts um, when you're like when you're younger and when you're in elementary school, and I think that that knowledge and that um, 
not bias, but that knowledge that we have of the agriculture industry just really starts with um, what we're raised around. Mm. Um, I I did a research project on um, whether or not adopting policy to have um, agriculture education in primary schools should be like um, adopted nationally. And I really think that that would be something that would um, really combat this issue of like missing, not misinformation, but an education about um, the agriculture industry and organics. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this on one education. That's a really powerful word. Um, there's this one. There's this one farm at this elementary school called Moss Haven Elementary, and it's based out of Dallas, Texas. Um, and they have like a small farm on campus, and they have some chicken coops, and they they grow lettuce. And um, there was all of these quotes from the students that were like, "I love knowing where my food comes from. I, I love getting to hold the chickens and learn about like why they lay eggs." And I, I think that even though it uh, starts at such a young age, and these are such young students, we're shaping these minds into. Um, well-educated human beings that can just understand where their food comes from and how much of a delicate process that is and I think that that's really um, really exciting. Yeah I feel like um, you know a hundred years ago that kind of knowledge was wider spread. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Like you know humans always knew where their food came from. Mm -hmm. It's these kinds of like industrial applications and and sort of this this uh, economic um, environment that we're in is a recent development right. Um, So the sense of distancing people from the food that's grown for their benefit, from the production of the things that they need to live and thrive. Um, That's actually relatively new if you're thinking about the arc of human history. Um, And I have to also say that in um, uh, lower income, uh, uh, more rural communities, um, black and brown communities, people have always had to rely on what the earth could provide and have Mm -hmm. always had to treasure and hang on to and pass down that sort of ancestral knowledge Mm -hmm. about how to create, as my grandmother would say, create something out of nothing, right? Make a way out of no way. Mm -hmm. That's what she would say. Are you saying black people are more (laughs) organic? I'm not saying that. I'm I'm not saying that at all, but I do do, do think, and people who've studied like the history of American food cultures will talk about the ways in which um, poor people have eaten over time, have suddenly in like the last 50 years become classy become yeah, the, right the pra- the province of, of the wealthy the sort of the mark of privilege is now applied to um, you know uh, uh, you know the beans and rice diet that is like for many of folks a struggle food right it's sort of how uh, people were able to feed their families in times of, of great deprivation is now seen as you know chic and it's healthy and it's desirable and in some ways it's out of the reach. <laughs> Can we get another hour? We need another hour for more discussion. <laughs> that's a whole other. That's a whole yeah. other topic. But I do think that the cultures that and the communities that we're part of in these sort of formative years transmit a whole lot of messages that we bring into our adult lives when we actually have money in our pockets and have the responsibility of making decisions about how to prioritize our spending, what we're going to try to bring into our lives as far as health and abundance and vitality and. Uh, depending on what children are exposed to at an early age, I, mm-hmm. you know, you can see those direct impacts um, on the kinds of choices that they make uh, later in life. There is a wealth of research out there on educational settings and sort of how teachers are teaching about things like climate change, how teachers are teaching about things like uh, conservation and what the impacts of certain curriculum structures and classroom activities and, and school school culture, like features of the school organization and environment, what they have, um, impact they have on students understanding and awareness, um, the ways that schools teach about recycling and what to do with your lunch 
tray when you're done with it, right? Some schools have a great, um, you know, make those into opportunities for teaching and learning, and you see those um, like proliferative benefits in in the adult choices of the students later on. Mm-hmm. Um, teaching about agriculture, teaching about organic agriculture, can be the same kind of, can make the same kind of impact. But I do think that you know. Maybe we should ask some questions together. Uh, yeah. You know, that's all research is, right? It's systematic yeah. observation, right? You ask the question in an organized way, and then you compare and think about your results. Yeah. Anyway, anytime I could get to work with you, I'm, <laughs> I'm down to clown. <laughs> for, uh, for comment on that idea, I think one really important thing. So one of the things I've noticed. So we moved here from Michigan about a year, just over a year ago, and and I've got kids in public school system, and. I would absolutely agree with you. If, I mean, if you look at the just the trucks delivering food to Laguna Middle School, which are the ones I see a lot, um, yeah, that sort of local, locally sourced organic produce is is very much forward. Didn't see that. I mean, and my kids were going to you know a, a wealthier high school in the in the Lansing area, and um, but the geographics I think had a huge impact on that. We didn't see that as much there because it's frozen seven months out of the year so you're not really growing much um, mm-hmm. when, when you know there's snow on the ground um, but in California I think that rural urban divide and sort of the the plight of rural communities and the folks living in those rural communities would be a really interesting cross-section for what you're talking about because I suspect I don't have the data but I suspect that you know folks in the Bay Area um, Central Coast, maybe in some areas of Southern California, you're seeing more of that sort of farmer's market, local ag tie-in to schools compared to what you might see in, say, Salinas or the Imperial Valley or Santa Maria even. Right, Um, even in in communities where where there's growing going on. all the food is being produced. But it's being produced for other places. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that, you know, the, the opportunity given the range of those localities that we draw students from, especially a lot of our transfer student population, would be a really interesting set of subjects. Mm-hmm. Now I'm getting all like research. So wait, 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 wait. Are we just all going to do a research project together? We just might have to do it. I would be, I would be happy to see the center get involved with something like that. We just have to talk about organics a little. But I definitely, I mean, the the idea about ag ed to me, it, it far surpasses organics. It really is. I love what um, you said um, about you know, human history and our connection to food. I mean, for most of our, you know, 250,000 year history as social mammals, food has been one of the organizing principles behind our day-to-day life. I mean, where, where, you know, how you're going to feed your kids, how you're going to feed yourself is something that we are all intimately involved in. And really it's only in the last 200 years where that has changed significantly um, for a vast proportion of the population that's always been you know, wealthier elites that maybe didn't have to worry about that so much. I wanted to touch on one of the issues um, about, you were talking about distribution, and you were mm-hmm. mentioning like the Imperial Valley and some of these um, like powerhouses, you would say, in the, orga- in the um, agriculture industry mm-hmm. and food production. Um, one of the biggest um, concerns or um, issues in the organic industry currently is this um, push for consolidating of certain areas of the organic ag mm-hmm. industry. And for some people that might um, come across as a violation of the social justice component of organic agriculture. Um, could you discuss a little bit more about what that means to you and well, um, your stance on the consolidation? Because some, some people think that when you consolidate, 
your employees are getting um, fair treatment because it's um, a larger consolidation. It's but then we have this issue of individual organic operations and empowering their platform and right. giving them the freedom to make their own choices when it comes to like their work, um, their workers' welfare and things like that. So there's a lot to unpack, unpack there. Yeah. Um, I think in two minutes. But <laughs> the first and foremost, I, you know, for me, as I've gotten older and I've been interacting with the organic movement for, you know, 20 some odd years now, um, my personal philosophy is really much more around the sort of a do, do less harm. I mean, that to me, that's, that's if I got a tattoo of words, it would probably be that. And that's really drawn from treatment of folks who have substance issues, or like, you know, addiction, addiction disease. I mean, that's really where that philosophy comes from. But I see a lot of parallels in our agricultural system. So the reality is, is that we have an urbanized population, a very small percentage of our population is involved in actual production of food at this point. Um, for most of us to eat, we have to penetrate that large industrial food system. And so from my perspective, organics are, you know, the consolidation of organics are, can be viewed as a good thing because we are pushing into these food systems and doing less harm, at least to the land. Um, from a social and economic standpoint, um, I'm, I'm not, I would not be the first to say this, but having run some small organic operations where we never got paid, um, mm. There are some economic advantages to scale. And the, the weird thing is, in, in a lot of organic farms that I've interacted with, a, a lot of them rely on a lot of volunteer labor. Um, there's a lot of people not getting paid, um, woofers, uh, community activists, etc. Whereas at the larger scale, pretty much everyone's getting paid. And so, you know, again, it's multidimensional. It has many faces. Depending on where you look at it, you're going to get a very different impression. My hope is that we're always making progress on both fronts. So the idea is I want everyone to have access to healthy produce and preferably organic produce, and I don't want them to go broke buying it. But also, I want to see more people really engaged in the food system and seeing both sides rather than just one. And that's the big tendency I see. Folks on the production side, we tend to get very production oriented, and we lose sight of the fact that we exist because there's people eating this stuff. Folks on the eating side, they get really fixated on, hey, can I afford this? What do I want to eat? You know, I want mm -hmm. blueberries 12 months out of the year, whatever. Um, <laughs> and they don't see the production side. So bridging that gap and getting conversations going is, to me, that's how we move forward together and create a better future for everybody. But it's, it's taken us, in the United States, it's taken us 400 years to get here. And the basis of agriculture was slavery and indentured servitude. So, I mean, those are the building blocks that went into building the system that we all rely on. So how do we make it gentler? How do we do less harm? How do we move mm -hmm. forward together? Right. Um, and, it, and, you know, it's, it's, and we can't change it overnight because we have to eat. But it can start with us. It can but start it with us. But it has to start with us. It has to. Well, yeah. can I just, just ping in here? Yeah. Because Thank the you, tradition please. of relying on exploitable labor is something that you can't ignore, especially when you start to raise these questions about whether consolidation in the industry is actually consistent with that social justice idea. And I find a troubling irony, like a really problematic um, core destruct for me, um, when we think about, you know, kind of like the, the, the rise in public awareness around organic food 
food is 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 intimately tied up with the United Farm Workers strike. Absolutely. Right? Think about Cesar Chavez. The what is it? The wrath of grapes speech. Right. Yep. Thinking mm-hmm. about um, the widening American awareness of the harm of pesticides, not just in terms of the food that they were eating, but on the workers in the field. Yes. So we can't disentangle the awareness in and the growth of the organic industry in the United States from that moment, right, in the 1970s, where people are being, like, at the, on the heels of the civil rights movement, where people are really thinking about quality of life issues and whether or not quality of life actually extends to every American, right? You can't take these two things apart. And so to say it's better for the industry to maybe skip over some of those concerns about what it means for workers, what it means for producers, what it means for all these organic growers who aren't getting paid to do this work that we're relying, that we're begging them to do, right? That people really are are prioritizing and, and highly valuing in some places. That's a problematic irony that I don't feel like we can let go of. I feel like it warrants scrutiny. Oh, it, it, we it, gotta wrap up. The center of it, I agree hundred <laughs> percent. I wish we could I keep talking. This is yeah. this yep. has been such an informative conversation and definitely one that has been um, long overdue in the in the terms of like agriculture education and um, the organic industry and how that intersects with the consumer population um, and all of their identities. Um, but I just wanted to say thank you again, um, Dr. Fry, for joining us here on this podcast. Um, your insight and your experience has been unforgettable. Um, Dr. Grishop, thank you again for sitting in with us. And See you on Friday. Thank yeah, you yeah. Um, Dr. Mike, thank you again. I'm here all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and um, just this is an amazing discussion, an amazing podcast episode. Um, so thank you guys. Thank and you. I think we'll wrap up this episode of Live in 225. Live in 225 is a production of the AGC 225 class at Cal Poly called Digital Communications and Agriculture. Program funding was provided by the California Certified Organic Farmers Foundation and the Transition to Organic Partnership Program. Our production team for this episode was Morgan Elia, Griffin Wilson, and Lauren McEwen. Our director for season one was Bella Anushian. Our host was Natalie Victorine. The executive producer, creator, and co-editor for the show was Moses Mike. Matt Greeshop was our co-producer. Our guest for this episode was Dr. Amanda Fry. Our audio technician was Melissa Frago, who was also our managing editor. The video switching director was Griffin Wilson. Our vocal talent was Jared Mandrell. Background music by LVY Music from Pixabay. Intro and outro music by Alex Grohl from Pixabay. Thanks for joining us.